Welcome back to your primary playlist. I'm your host, Emily Tish Sussman. For those joining us for the first time, this podcast is your definitive guide to the 2020 presidential primary, explained by the women who know it best. Today, we're going to dig into an issue that tends to stay under the radar in national politics, but is critical for all Americans infrastructure. Defining infrastructure can be difficult. It often includes everything but the kitchen sink, from roads to bridges to veterans' hospitals and airports. For the purposes of this episode, we'll primarily focus on physical structures, housing, and broadband. President Trump's track record on infrastructure is not great. Now a running joke in Washington is that to the White House, every week is Infrastructure Week. The White House literally puts out press releases all the time, declaring it Infrastructure Week, but then doesn't actually do anything about it. Trump even abandoned the only previous bipartisan infrastructure efforts, saying there would be no deal unless inquiries into his own actions stopped. The American Society of Civil Engineers has estimated that funding would be needed to be increased by $2 trillion over 10 years to make up for the existing infrastructure gap. As for housing, politicians have always talked about homeownership as a key part of achieving the American dream. Still, housing has always been an area of vast inequities. And today, the homeownership rate among millennials is about 8% lower than it was for Gen Xers and baby boomers when they were the same age. Housing is something that President Trump knows well as a real estate developer. In 1973, Trump was sued by the federal government for alleged racial discrimination at his housing developments, which is certainly an indicator of his approach toward housing policy today. For example, in September, the Trump administration released a new housing policy that experts say, quote, could leave future home buyers, particularly those who are lower income, with fewer options and resources. Although infrastructure often flies under the radar during presidential elections, everyone feels the impact of these policies daily. To sort through the key areas of infrastructure policy and break down where the Democratic candidates stand, I'm thrilled to be joined by Emily Chatterjee. Emily Chatterjee is senior counsel at the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund. There, she leads the economic security work. Emily is a graduate of the University of Chicago Law School and Brown University. Welcome, Emily. Thanks so much for having me. When people think about infrastructure, maybe they think about it as just roads and bridges, or maybe they do think about it more broadly. What do you think that people actually want and need in terms of an infrastructure policy? So I think communities actually really want infrastructure where they can actually have input into what's being done. I think infrastructure is ultimately only as good and as useful as the community and stakeholders that use it think it is. And so that often has not been as large of a voice. Uh, They have not had as large of a voice as maybe they need to, uh, to ensure that there are better outcomes in terms of investment and there's meaningful community participation. And it feels like there should be bipartisan agreement on infrastructure, right? I mean, it feels like roads, schools, water, those feel like nonpartisan issues. And it feels like there should be an area where a bipartisan agreement is possible. And both Republicans and Democrats have actually said recently they want an infrastructure bill to be passed. So, the, But the approaches have been different. And I guess that's why we don't have one yet. So what do you see as like the key pieces of a Democratic infrastructure plan And how do those differ than what Republicans are advocating for? So you are 100% correct. There absolutely is bipartisan consensus that we need to um, 
do some major uh, investment in terms of infrastructure, both in terms of backlogs and bringing our infrastructure up to the 21st century. Um, where things really differ um, at the bottom line is how you're going to pay for it. So um, Democratic plans have typically really focused on direct spending. The beginning of last year, Senate Democrats put forward a really robust package that um, I think is probably the benchmark for where we, where, um, we should be talking. Uh, in fact, it's, it's interesting because most of the presidential candidates um, on the Democratic side, they haven't put forward an infrastructure plan. Their focus is much more so in terms of climate change and thinking about infrastructure and how that addresses climate change. But on the Democratic side, the Senate Democrat plan, they um, proposed an infrastructure plan with a trillion dollars of federal investment over 10 years. And the way that they wanted to pay for that is repealing the 2017 Trump tax cuts and closing a carried interest loopholes. Um, the Republican plan that uh, the Trump administration put forward last year um, puts forward a small pot, but it really relies on private investment and, um, you know, incentivizes that. And so it's a very different approach. I'm going to go on a limb and assume that you do not support that. But why? Sure. We support actual um, public investment because we think it's one, when, when folks come in, private investors come in, their main priority is obviously profit, right? They want to do their jobs well, but their, their main incentive in engaging in infrastructure is to get profit. Um, when the federal government is actually involved and when it's actually communities, then it's communities who are centered in that. And it, the, the spending should really center around connecting people to opportunity and prioritizing infrastructure investment in the communities and areas that need them the most. So that is um, rural areas. Areas, it's places like Flint. It's um, places where, uh, like in urban areas where there is um, not investment in terms of broadband. Those are the places that we really need to be investing. When you ins when you really are prioritizing private investment, they're going to be prioritizing areas where they're going to be able to get the most um, returns on their investment. And that's not where we actually need to really be um, spending our infrastructure dollars. So can you get into what some of those key pieces are of what you would see as as a dream infrastructure bill. What exactly is in that package? What makes it up? It, it would be um, spending a lot of money on modernizing water and sewer systems, be repairing and improving public transit, money for roads and bridges. A lot the, the grade for bridges across the country is really poor and should frighten us all. Um, money for rail, money for um, lead remediation, affordable housing, money for school infrastructure, money for ports and waterways, airports and airspace, disaster resilience, and of course, very importantly, investment in the green grid, um, including research and implementation of green energy. So it's really broad, and we, we um, really laud that approach. We do think at this this moment, it's important to go broad in thinking about what counts as infrastructure. Historically, you know, I think a lot of people have folk, have thought about infrastructure in terms of like roads and bridges, but it's a lot larger than that, right? Because infrastructure is about connecting communities and families to economic opportunity. And so if you're looking at it more like that, it's roads and bridges and airports, but it's also about access to safe, reliable, and affordable energy, transportation, Broad, broadly, telecommunications, schools, clean water, housing. It's it's like how do what are what is the infrastructure of our society in a, in a broader sense? I mean, these things feel popular. Like these feel like things that people want. But it's interesting you say that most Democratic candidates don't really have a plan. I mean, is that a missed opportunity for them? So I don't 
think so. I think it's um, it goes back to something we talked about earlier, which is that there really is bipartisan consensus that we need to be spending money on infrastructure. So if there is consensus on that, it's not really where people are going to be focusing their energy in terms of like conversation and debate. I think everyone, they're, they're all agreed. I think Senator Klobuchar is the only major candidate to have put out an infrastructure plan in the same way that um, the Senate Democrats have, like that sort of robustly. But a lot of other candidates are addressing it in different ways in the sense of they're thinking about infrastructure um, in terms of climate and thinking about the fact that like any kind of infrastructure spending really needs to be done in a way to alleviate the harms of climate change and really, you know, building out the green grid and and investing in a way that, uh, you know, helps us move forward in addressing all of these issues. And so, and they, there are also a lot of um, proposals like Elizabeth Warren. Um, she has a plan that's really, it's threaded through her plan that addresses rural America and Native American reservations and, the, and again, the climate crisis. Um, but it's, it's not like focused specifically on infrastructure or like as an aside and same thing, like, you know, um, you know, uh, Joe Biden has a, a infrastructure plan, but it's not comprehensive. There are pieces that relate to schools. There's pieces that relate to rural infrastructure and again, climate change. I did actually want to ask you about the Klobuchar policy proposal. So it was her first policy proposal. It was Klobuchar's first policy proposal that she came out with as a presidential candidate. It was a trillion dollar infrastructure plan. But some have said about her plan that um, they've noted that she's calling for increase in spending for existing projects but not changes to structural features of the U.S. infrastructure policy. So what are your feelings about where a plan should be? Is that the right approach? Is it increase in spending where we're already spending, or is it structural change? So I, I think what we need right now is there. There is as uh, Transportation for America, which is a you know a, a big advocacy organization that works on a lot of these issues. They have come out and said they want all money to go to fund maintenance, not expansion, because of the maintenance backlog. Um, so they actually are not advocating for Congress to increase funding for transportation infrastructure because of that, um, which is, you know, a, a pretty big shift and notable. So so those, the backlog is very important, especially in terms of safety. At the same time, I don't think we can just do that because so much of our need going into the next few decades is really going to be about having infrastructure that's resilient um, and is um, going to help us confront the what we're going to be facing with climate change. And what are the, the the labor and worker implications here? I remember when Trump was trying to ramp up, I'm going to put ramp up in quotes, his infrastructure, his infrastructure push that he had called, he had invited in the heads of major labor unions to meet with him to try to win over their support on his infrastructure plan. So what's, what's that dynamic? Yeah. So Obviously, one of the reasons that we as a civil and human rights coalition and so many people are interested in infrastructure generally is because it is a source of so many jobs, right? And, uh, you know, Senate Democrats with their policy, they said that they, they project that their plan would create more than 15 million jobs. So 
you know, a lot of interests go to that in terms of jobs and making sure that there are labor protections. And I know there's conversation about Buy America provisions as well. For us, you know, it's very important for small businesses and minority women and veteran-owned businesses to have access to contracts and to ensure that they're involved. There's a lot there, and we just want to ensure that it's ensuring maximum community benefit for vulnerable communities and that there's robust workforce training and that you know, all of these jobs that are created through infrastructure have job quality and human rights standards and job access regulations. Some candidates like Buttigieg have focused on rural infrastructure um, and others, like I know Booker had mentioned, some urban infrastructure. So do you think that candidates are correctly recognizing which pieces of the plan should be national, like something like, you know, labor protections would be something that's national? And are they focusing on which pieces need to be differentiated based on urban versus rural? Or is everything that's out there just kind of blanketing? So I think with the rural pieces, it's really about thinking of, of, of the needs that rural America has that are di- different as compared to other folks, or, you know, where they're sp- not, or maybe not different, but have particular needs, such as the need for for broadband, it's just a lot harder to build that infrastructure in rural America. So according to a recent poll, 75 percent of all voters this year say they'd be more likely to vote for someone who has a plan to make housing more affordable. Given there's so much strong public support for affordable housing plans, why do you think we don't hear candidates speaking about it that much? You know, you're exactly right. And we at the Leadership Conference and so many members of Leadership Conference are um, surprised um, because we know exactly how unaffordable housing has become and how important it is to everyday people in our country um, and have actually written to candidates to say, like, why aren't you talking about this? And, and to people who are running the debates, like, why aren't you actually raising this question? I think it's because the focus, I mean, as you know, watching these debates and really what the focus has been on has been largely on healthcare. Um, understandably, but there hasn't been a lot of diversity in terms of the issues that they're talking about. Um, and I think to the detriment of, of you know, everyday people, because housing is everyone's largest cost. And we know that this is something that is spiraling out of control in too many regions in this country. And people are now, you know, tying it back to infrastructure. There are people who are facing super commutes, right? And, you know, in more and more regions, and that's not sustainable. And it's not a path to opportunity for people. And we know that Trump is certainly going to talk about it, but kind of on the flip side, through the lens of homelessness, it's something that he's trying to to center even more in the conversation. Obviously, homelessness is directly related to housing. And, you know, homelessness in the U.S. did increase in 2018 for the second straight year. So what policies do you think are contributing to this? And have you seen candidates have proposals to reverse it? The rise in homelessness is something that we've all seen and is incredibly disheartening. And I think really points to the fact that people need to be talking about the access to affordable housing more and more. Um, In certain areas, there is a great mismatch between um, who can afford to live where they work. So I think that's a major driver. And we couldn't talk about housing in this primary debate without mentioning the fact that one of the candidates Julian Castro was the secretary of housing and urban development under President Obama. And many of the candidates are senators, mayors and governors who all had to handle housing directly in their jobs. Do you think that 
that one kind of experience here is more valuable than others or more directly applies to manage the issue? So I'll tell you a story um, that, and a a campaign actually, that I found really um, heartening during the Obama administration. So Anthony Fox was the, you know, the um, Secretary of Transportation, and he actually shared a story about his own life. He grew up in Charlotte and, um, you know, as he was growing up, that was when, um, you know, the, the highway highway system was being built. And his community, they built a highway that actually drove right through his community. And so he talked about his story and why we need to make choices in terms of how we're building infrastructure and how we're planning it that actually connects people to opportunity. Because his community was disconnected from opportunity for decades as a result of that. And Charlotte is just one example. Um, of of that happening. And it wasn't just then. They divided communities that had relied upon one another um, for years. It is a story that is echoed all over. But he really talked about that in personal terms, because without, if we're not making choices that are actually connecting people, we are making choices to actually separate people. And we have done that historically as a country. So his ability to really use his personal story to illuminate that and use his his position as Secretary of Transportation to talk about that in a way was revolutionary and is something that I think we need more of in um, in this space. So Warren has focused part of her housing plan specifically on the history of discrimination in housing and calling for a grant for, quote, first-time home buyers who live in areas where Black families were once excluded from getting home loans. Booker has also focused on this, speaking to your point, his personal story of his parents. Um, And he's proposing legal assistance for tenants facing eviction and protection against housing discrimination. So how important do you think that these kinds of proposals that are trying to fix the housing discrimination of past, how important are they as part of a housing package? I think they're very important. Um, As we know in this country, not only is there increasing inequality, but there is a historic racial and gender wealth gap. And much of that gap comes from our history of discrimination in housing and our history of redlining. So for, for to lift communities up, having the ability to actually own homes and build wealth for your family and for your community is really very critical. In the last few debates, we've heard a lot of disagreement about whether some proposals are realistic or how they would be paid for. To your point, it all kind of comes down to how things are paid for. So do you think that what you've seen from the candidates, no matter where it lives in their proposals, do you think their proposals are realistic? I think right now, the a lot of the proposals are, are um, they're all talking about similar pots of money to pay for multiple things. And so at the end of the day, we're going to need to figure out what those pots, they can't be used multiple times, um, what we're actually going to be prioritizing and what we're not. So I want to switch gears a little bit to talk about what you had mentioned as like the next forefront of infrastructure, broadband, like high-speed internet access. So a recent study found that nearly one out of every three Americans don't have high-speed internet access in their homes which feels shocking to those who live off of it, basically. So some candidates such as Biden, Buttigieg, and Warren have proposed specific plans with dollar amounts to address it. But what do you think the needs are really to solve this problem? So in the case of broadband, right, we actually have 
companies that actually go out and build this infrastructure. And so it's working with those companies to actually build in places where it is much more expensive and where it's much less accessible to actually do that. Um, and that's going to take work with, with that sector to do so. Uh, right now, broadband is, you know, it's, it's, privately owned. It is not a public commodity. And so that's a, it's a different sector. So politically, there's a lot of discussion about whether Democrats can ever win rural voters again. And given that a lot of rural constituents lack broadband access, is this a way to win rural voters? Should candidates be talking about it more? I think a lot of candidates do. I think in the Senate, you hear it all the time. And and it's a reason why a lot of um, candidates are focused on rural plans, because it is a real barrier to opportunity for people living in rural America. It's not just you know, your ability to apply for jobs or for to search for information. It's also access to telemedicine. It's access to education. You know, there is a digital divide. There's a lot of low-income people in urban areas who similarly lack access. And that is something that I think unites people. A lot of folks just assume that you have a smartphone and people, I, I mean, I have heard stories of where people feel like they have to keep their smartphone over other things in their life because it is such an important way to access everything. And without they're cut off. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for joining us. A dense topic, but you really helped us cut through it. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Let's take a quick pause to hear from this week's sponsor, Verishop. Verishop is an e-commerce platform built to bring joy back into online shopping. They do this by curating the best brands for you, so you no longer have to sacrifice convenience for discovery. Verishop has all your major categories covered, from women's and men's fashion, featuring brands like IRO, Vince and Deadwood, to home decor products like Boyle and Branch and The Beach People. Verishop offers free returns, flexible payment plans, and even free one-day shipping. No minimums or membership fees attached. When you're shopping on Verishop, you can be confident that you're seeing the best out there. Each product and brand is hand-selected by an experienced retail team and Verishop tastemakers, who curate special collections so you can shop your favorite influencer's signature aesthetic. Verishop also gives you the power to make thoughtful decisions when you shop with their Responsible Shop, which exclusively features brands upholding values like fair trade, sustainability, organic practices, and philanthropy. So go to verishop.com slash YPP for 15% off your first order. That's verishop.com slash YPP. How many of you are listening to this podcast on your smartphone? What else do you rely on your phone to do today? As more of our information sharing and daily tasks are moved online, it's great for those who can access high-speed internet, but what about for those who can't? To help us understand the role of broadband and net neutrality, we welcome Jessica Rosenworcel, a commissioner at the Federal Communications Commission. Federal Communications Commissioner Jessica Rosenworcel is responsible for developing policies to help expand the reach of broadband to schools, libraries, hospitals, and households across the country. Named as one of Politico's 50 Politicos to Watch and profiled by InStyle Magazine, Jessica brings over two decades of communications policy experience and public service to the FCC. Prior to joining the agency, she served as Senior Communications Counsel for the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation. Before entering public service, Jessica practiced communications law, she is a graduate of Wesleyan University and NYU Law. She lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband and two children. 
Welcome, Commissioner. Thank you for having me. So this is an episode about infrastructure. And when people think about infrastructure, they generally think about like bridges or tunnels. But why should broadband be considered part of infrastructure? Well, I think broadband is the essential infrastructure of the digital age. And just like roads, bridges, and canals a century ago were essential for everyone to get connected, today we need digital connections. And the way to do that is to ensure that broadband reaches everyone, no matter who they are or where they live in this country. And that's going to be an important part of our political dialogue and our policy dialogue. So I am um, thrilled that it's taking center stage in the infrastructure discussions. I think it deserves its place there. As dependent as so many of us are on broadband, I mean, we think about the amount of things like we pick up our phones to use for these days. Not everybody has it, right? Absolutely. We've got a digital divide in this country. And, you know, it's really good to put some numbers on it. Because where I work at the Federal Communications Commission, we have these very official numbers. We say about 21 million Americans do not have access to broadband service. But when I travel around the country, I get the sense that those numbers really understate things. And it turns out others have done studies, and those studies suggest that there are more than 162 million Americans who access the internet at something less than broadband speed. And you know, you don't have to know a lot of math, but there's a big gap between 21 million and 162 million. And I think that that represents to us the size and scale of our broadband problem and a digital divide we're going to have to figure out how to address and a gap we've got to fix. Internet is almost hitting public utility, but it's all private. So are those particular challenges that you see? Yeah, well, it's become so necessary. I mean, there was a time when we talked about broadband and internet access as a luxury. Those days are gone. They're over. You're going to need it if you want a fair shot at success in this new era. And we got to start acting as public policy uh, officials, as politicians, as individuals who care about our communities. We got to figure out how to make sure that everyone has access, make sure that's true. Is it just rural areas that don't have access or have limited access, or is it differentiated in either suburban, exurban, or urban as well? That's a good question. So let's unpack it. In the first instance, you've got a deployment problem. You've got rural areas in this country that are sparse, population is limited, the geography is tough, and the cost of deploying there is hard, much like it was with electricity a generation ago. So we got to figure out how we get deployment in those rural communities, because without this access, they're just not going to thrive. And then I think we've also got issues with affordability in more populated areas, and we've got to focus on those too, because every kid is going to need access to the internet to do their homework. Everyone's going to need access to the internet to do jobs in the 21st century. I mean, we've got um, what I like to think of as broadband deserts, small areas that may not have the service they need. And the most important thing for us to do right now as a nation is to figure out where those problem areas are. In other words, we're going to need really good maps. We're going to need maps that tell us where service is and is not everywhere across the country, in urban America, rural America, everything in between, because I just don't think we're going to be able to manage this problem if we don't measure it. And getting better maps, I think, is actually the first and most important job. So what are the solutions? I mean, you mentioned the maps as being one of them, but given that there's pro- there's both national problems, like lack of a map, but then there's differentiated regional, regional problems, like urban versus rural, like what are the solutions that break down between national and, and urban or rural? Like how do they differentiate? You know, we have such a diverse country and, you know, 
we're going to have to figure out how to make this work in lots of different locations and lots of different places. I don't think the answer is going to be exactly the same in every community. So we have communities that are studying how they can develop municipal services and float bonds. We've got communities that are working with private sector providers to make sure that they can extend the reach of their networks to cover more people. And we've got grant programs here in Washington and in the states to help communities get those things done. It is a mix of a lot of different ideas, a lot of different solutions, and even different technologies. So I don't think there's a single solution, but there are a lot of ideas. And the best part is that if a community is successful in getting broadband and extending its reach and getting more people to adopt it, we are all free to go borrow and steal their ideas. <laughs> and I think we should. The beauty yeah. of federalism, right? <laughs> the beauty of federalism. No, it's a good thing. I think, um, I think we should actively engage in uh, the kind of theft of good ideas and things that work to extend broadband, and we should do it across the country. And so where do those levers of power lie in terms of getting towards a solution? Like, is it something that would have to be passed by law through Congress, or is it something that, that the executive branch and therefore the president would have power over, I guess, coming up with solutions and implementing? Oh my gosh, I think the answer is all of the above. I mean, I've seen incredible activities in local communities where they get together, figure out how they're gonna aggregate their power and aggregate demand for this service and get service in a place that doesn't have it. I've seen state level authorities who have come together and try to figure out which areas don't have service and what programs they can fund to help extend it. And then we've got federal programs like here at the FCC and also at the Department of Agriculture. We've historically had some of the Department of Commerce to help push broadband further and further into the country. But we're going to need solutions at every level local, state, and federal to make this happen. I'd actually love to know about some of those examples, like the state and local. Like, if there, Are there any just sort of out-of-the-box ideas that others ended up adopting? Or if they haven't, maybe they should be. Let's see. Uh, in rural California, in Coachella Valley, which is a place probably some people associate with a music festival, but I'm not talking about that part. I'm talking about the part that is all agrarian. And there was a superintendent at the high school I met there. What he found was when the school shut at the end of the day, the students were still lingering in the halls and sitting in the parking lot. And he was like, what is, what's going on? Why are they still hanging out? Well, they were still hanging out because it was the only place they could go to actually get the signal they needed to get online and do their homework. And they were falling into this part of the digital divide that I call the homework gap. It's the kids who can't get online and do their schoolwork. So he saw this problem and he just came up with the neatest thing to do. He recognized that most of these kids lived about an hour from the school, and they were on the school bus for long rides every day, an hour in the morning to get to school and an hour at night to come back. So he outfitted the school buses with, with Wi-Fi routers. Oh, wow. And so he turned that ride time into connected time for homework. And suddenly the fact that they weren't connected at home was no longer an impediment for them succeeding. And I think that I've also seen it in the Midwest, in Iowa. I was just in a town in Iowa called Winterset. And the people there came together and said, wow, we have this problem. Our kids can't get their schoolwork done. We can't seem to get broadband deployed to everyone's house. What are we going to do? And I love what they did because it's so low tech for this high tech problem. But they went around to every business in town and they said, would you be a safe spot for school and for homework? Would you put a decal in your window to let every student know that if they need free Wi-Fi, they can come in? And so, you know, there are places you'd expect, the municipal buildings, the libraries, but the coffee shops, the insurance agents, all of these 
businesses stepped up. They put this decal in their window. It's a community telling people, we care about your success. We care about you being able to get online. We recognize we have a problem and we're going to figure out how to work together to solve it. I'm struck by those kind of efforts because I think they renew your faith in our ability to get things done. And I think we need to sort of model our behaviors in Washington and those kind of efforts because there are solutions out there. And like I said earlier, we just have to figure out how to copy them copy them in more places so we reach more people. You know what I love about that Iowa solution about the local, the small businesses having um, like safe zones for homework is that it's it's basically creating positive offline externalities. Like it's it's in-person community building, something that we don't like we don't even talk about that as being a possible byproduct of, of everyone living online. Like we only think it can go down. <laughs> it's a way of community building. And I think that's important. I mean, that's often how we succeed if we've got a big problem. And I think this is a problem we need to solve. I think we have to realize that our offline and online lives can intersect. And figuring out how we get more people online can sometimes involve offline activity. So I want to switch gears a little bit, but still in your wheelhouse here. So there's different ideologies around net neutrality. And there's been some movement in the last couple of years. So can you just explain, can you give us some background on net neutrality and and what do you predict will happen? Sure. From the outset, I'll say I am a big supporter of net neutrality. I opposed this administration's efforts to roll back net neutrality. And the reason I think net neutrality matters is I think if you're a consumer, you should be able to go where you want and do what you want online without your broadband provider getting in the way and telling you where you can go and what you can do. And the truth is, after the FCC got rid of its net neutrality rules, we gave the broadband providers in this country the green light to block websites, censor online content, and throttle services over the internet. I just don't think that's a good thing. I think that we are better off and collectively more creative if you know we're in control and we can go where we want, do what we want, and it's not all just delivered to us like uh, you know television channels were years and years ago. So I, I think that those rules were important as a matter of principle. And you know I'm not alone. The surveys that were done found that 86% of the American public opposed the FCC's efforts to roll back net neutrality. And, you know, getting 86% of the American public to agree to something these days is a, is um, is something. It's worth noting that, you know, there's broad-based support for net neutrality. And I am hopeful that with more time, more energy, and more people speaking up, we're going to once again make it the law of the land. Thank you so much. Thank you for bringing some clarity to this incredibly confusing sometimes issue. Thank you for, uh, you know, caring about these uh, wonky and technical issues. They touch all of us. They matter to all of us. And um, it's exciting to be able to talk to them about them to more people in more places. Thank you for listening to this episode of your primary playlist. For more from Emily, you can follow her work on Twitter at civil rights org. And for more from Jessica, you can find her at Jay Rosenworcel. For behind-the-scenes photos and extras, follow us on Instagram at Your Primary Playlist. Special thanks to Wonder Media Network and the whole Your Primary Playlist team for producing this show. Talk to you next time. Last Day is a new podcast about the things that are killing us. It tackles massive epidemics and societal changes that are hard to comprehend and getting worse every day. Now, this may sound bleak and depressing, 
but best-selling author Stephanie Whittles-Wax hosts the show with humanity, wit, and a quest for progress. Season one of Last Day explores the opioid crisis that is now killing more people than car accidents. The show zooms in on one person's last day of life, exploring how they got there and then zooms out to help us understand the big picture and what can be done. Stephanie, who lost her brother, comedian Harris Whittles, to an overdose knows a thing or two about the opioid crisis. In Last Day, you'll hear from people directly affected by the crisis, including authors, experts, policy leaders and communities of color, first responders, and even comedian Sarah Silverman. It's chilling and important, and you won't want to miss it. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts.